0: Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in December of 2015. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman
1: talks with editor and digital novelist Eli Horowitz about the virtues of collaboration. In all these projects, you get into the middle where you're saying, what is the point? And it's great to have someone else who will mind if this thing doesn't happen. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around Eli Horowitz and all that he does. He's been a publisher at McSweeney's, where he not only edited books, but also designed them and even won awards for his designs. He has worked on a site-specific audio tour of downtown Oakland, and he's a contributing editor to the podcast, The Mystery Show. He's the co-creator of books including Everything You Know Is Pong, an illustrated history of table tennis. His new book is called The Pickle Index, which Slate called a rolled doll via Kafkaesque fable for the digital age. Oh, and he also builds furniture from salvaged redwood. My ambition in today's interview is to find out what has drawn him into these intriguing endeavors and projects and what they might have in common. Eli Horowitz, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Eli, I understand you have a Rolodex of cards with the names and phone numbers of prominent movie stars from the 1980s, including Winona Ryder... Marlon Brando, and Eddie Murphy. So why do you have these? And have you called any of the numbers? Do they work?
1: You know, it's one of these things where you want to preserve the mystery. So I don't know almost anything about where it's from or what it's good for. My friend found it on the sidewalk in San Francisco on Carolina Street, and he just knew that it should be with me. I guess someone had broken into a car or something, and just all these cards, some are hand-lettered, some are typed, but pasted onto the Rolodex, and it's a weird mix of these kind of legendary Brando-type figures, and they'll be like Steve Gutenberg also. So, and he told me he gave me everyone except Michelle Pfeiffer, but the reason is, it wasn't he was trying to keep it for himself, it's because that had fallen onto a used condom that was also on the sidewalk, so he decided to save that one for another passerby.
0: And there was absolutely no desire or enticement to call anyone, not even Marlon Brando? It just
1: seems like... uh they wouldn't pick up it would just only get worse the farther i looked into it so i just let it <laughs> let it be you were
0: born in virginia you went to yale university and studied philosophy and now you live in northern california but you're not doing anything at all with your philosophy degree are you
1: or maybe Or maybe everything, right? Right. (laughs) Right?
0: Everything is philosophy. Right.
1: But certainly nothing I do is anything I was trained for, and anything that I was supposedly sort of trained for is nothing that I do.
0: But I guess understanding the world and understanding motivation is a big part of doing anything.
1: Yeah, or the process of trying to, um, probably to a fault, the way I approach all these projects is stripping them down to what I see as the base principles and then reasoning from there. I sort of approach everything in an overly analytical way. Why is that? I think it's just how my mind works. And so if I like the combination of these ridiculous situations or ridiculous confines or challenges of a project, but then trying to be very rigorous, to me, all these books or whatever are very logical. They sort of turned out the only way they could have, though there's another part of me that's aware that that's crazy.
0: Well, that's an interesting notion given how many different ways there are to interpret quite a lot of the books that you've written. And we'll get to that I understand that one of your first jobs was writing science trivia questions based on
1: popular films of the 1990s. Who are you doing this for? This was right after college, and the Internet was very popular at the time. So I was hired by this place called thescience.com. And that was when dot com was a cool notion. So <laughs> which com It's thescience.com. Oh. It's going to be sort of like the MTV of science on the Internet. It was the full rise and fall of the internet, the first boom, but in a microscopic way. It wasn't some pets.com where it got huge and collapsed. It just sort of went this to this to this.
0: A notch up and a notch back down. Yeah,
1: and never happened. But their their flagship was going to be this trivia game. So questions about um, Armageddon, the movie, questions about men in black, but also questions about Sleepless in Seattle. My so what giant, was
0: the connection to science? You always just had
1: to find one. If it was Men in Black, I would ask you something like, at the end of Men in Black, the cab driver's head explodes and a bunch of cockroaches crawl out. How long could an actual cockroach live without its head? How long? One week. Follow-up question, why does it die? Starvation. Well, yeah, thirst. Because apparently its brain is spread all the way throughout its body. But it just doesn't have a mouth, so it can't... Isn't that incredible? Wow, our
0: listeners have already learned something on
1: today's show. That's the kind of information that a whole generation of of teens in the year 2000 <laughs> could have learned, but, but unfortunately don't even know because of the failure of the science.com.
0: <laughs> what a tragedy. You were also briefly employed as an apprentice carpenter using the carpentry skills you taught yourself from a book. What made you pick up carpentry to begin with?
1: I guess just a daydream. I'm just wondering if it could be done and whether I could do it. I certainly wasn't raised, you know, I just grew up in the suburbs in a very normal way and hadn't done that at all. But I had this dream of building a very basic cabin, and so I just did my best. And it really was a foundational experience for me because I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't very good at it, but still it kind of worked out. You know, if you set the confines of the challenge correctly and sort of approach it in a step-by-step way, you can sort of blunder your way through, through almost anything.
0: As long as you understand the
1: directions.
0: Well, I guess even if you sort don't understand of. the directions, you know, can of still blunder. You, yeah,
1: one of the things you learn about on any kind of construction crew is how much of it isn't pretty. If a stud isn't going where you want it to, you just bang on it a lot till it goes where you want it to go. So Sounds like my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I think, all of our lives. It's not like <laughs> a, this precision Fabergé egg of a life or a project. It's just sort of dealing with what you can do and trying to do your best.
0: There is a supposedly mythic version of how you ended up at McSweeney's, which I read on BuzzFeed, is actually true. Uh, 826 Valencia, the writing tutoring program founded by Dave Eggers, was in need of a carpenter. So, you helped build the Pirate Supply Store, the storefront attached to the tutoring center that sells both McSweeney's publications and pirating supplies. My guess is that your carpentry skills are pretty good if you were able to do that.
1: Everything that I touched is now gone from (laughs) probably within three months. I think actually the fish tank, that there's sort of a fish viewing theater in the Pirate Store with a few movie seats and some fish. The tank. I actually purchased, and that's maybe the last remaining bit of me in that store. No, but I sort of, I guess, helped them get through those early months, and then the store was ready to open. So they asked me to sit at the cash register. So, and I was just waiting for grad school. I guess I had been, as a desperation move, I was going to go to school for urban planning that fall.
0: Why was it a desperation Cause move? Because
1: I was desperate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I, co- I had written my trivia questions, I had built this thing in the woods. And then I was adrift. I was fully adrift and it decided I'm adrift, but I'm not going to go to grad school. And then a few months later, I was like, i am just got to go to grad school just as a, as a desperation, desperation move.
0: move. So you were sitting at the register in, in the pirate supply store, manning the register. Right. You're reading books when it's slow.
1: Yeah. Almost no one came in because they didn't know they needed glass eyes or lard or whatever.
0: Three months later, you're the editor of McSweeney's. How did that happen?
1: I mean, that's just how it always worked there, sort of people being in the right place at the right time and having stuff thrown at them, kind of a sink or swim atmosphere. But everyone sort of put in a position where if they are enthusiastic and focused, there's opportunities. That's how everyone there got involved.
0: One of the things that I read that you said about that appointment really resonated with me, but I'm not sure that I believe it. You said that your tenure at McSweeney's was an opportunity you did not earn, that you were in the right place at the right time. And I wrote this question, obviously, before you said what you just said. And my the next part of the question was, really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully after the fact, I earned it by trying hard and sticking with it. But at the time. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. I had never edited a book before. I'd certainly never designed a book before.
0: What gave Dave the impression then that you could do any of this? I don't consider him to be a fairly reckless person. I've oh. interviewed him <laughs> as
1: well, and he's quite smart. Oh, he's very smart, but he does have that approach of just sort of jumping into the thing and figuring it along the way. And so and there was a lot of stuff that needed to be done, and I was there and I was game. And um I'm sure the process of doing it winnowed out whether or not I could do it or what I could do. The only way to me I can think of it as being earned is because I had tried a handful of random things beforehand and sort of hit brick walls, particularly like during that adrift period that ended up with me being there. You know, for a while I thought it sounded like a really good job to work at Encyclopedia Britannica. (laughs) I remember trying really hard to get a job there and failing, you know. So I would put myself into positions or even this carpentry job like was maybe going to be, maybe I'm a carpenter now. No, I'm not a carpenter. I don't want to be. I'm not good at it.
0: But had you not done that, it was the step that led you to... Yeah,
1: and being willing to just sort of jump in and see where it goes. That was the same thing there, was edit, sure, I'll give it a try. So you hit a wall enough times, but each one's like a little lottery ticket, and sometimes they pay off.
0: You've said that you didn't know anything about publishing at that time. You were sitting manning the register. Dave asked you if you wanted to read one of his books. I guess he liked what you said about one of his books. You become editor three months later. You say that not only did you know nothing about publishing, but nobody else working at McSweeney's knew anything either. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was the secret to the early success?
1: I mean, it created challenges also, but it definitely allowed us uh, sort of the ignorance can be freeing in a way to sort of jump in and try and not be having to consciously reinvent anything. because We didn't know what we were reinventing, just trying to figure it out for what it was and bring that kind of enthusiasm to it. It can be a little debilitating to know all the pitfalls, know all the other people who've tried things before, and you kind of think, ah, what's the point? So it was fun just to make it up as we went along. It was probably also useful to be in San Francisco, away from New York, and to not have that sort of consciousness and that community.
0: You left your position as publisher of McSweeney's in 2010, and then entirely in 2012. Regarding your departure, you said that you liked the idea of having an end point that nothing lasts forever. So you either pick when it dies or just let it slowly become inevitably dead. So you picked when it died.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess eventually. I mean, it's still going.
0: It's still going, but- But I'm dead. (laughs) Well, hardly. But was it difficult? Did you ever worry about what you were going to do next? In all of my research on you, Eli, you seem to be able to, despite what you said about the desperation in terms of considering going to grad school, you seem to really roll with the punches rather elegantly, and you're able to very seamlessly transition from one thing to another without breakdowns and bouts of mental illness and whatever well, else yes. we all go through <laughs> when we make big changes.
1: McSweeney's wise, it took a while because that really was where I grew up creatively and as a person. That was sort of an elongated process. Since then, yeah, it's I don't find it difficult because, I don't know, I live cheaply. That makes a big difference. I don't perceive... It is. I'm doing anything so difficult. It just maybe I feel less encumbered by career. I don't ever think of myself as having a career in any sense. I don't know. I guess I don't know what people would be so worried about. If I had children or something, that would change the game, of course. I think if you do things spontaneously and cheaply, and in your own way, you just do it. It is what it is. I it mean, yeah, you just do it, and then you figure it out later what you just did.
0: One of the things that i read about you that i was really intrigued by was the notion that you might like your solitude more than you should you like spending time alone and i can't help but think that that means that you're pretty satisfied with who you are
1: oh i wouldn't say that (laughs) no i wouldn't say that the solitude is a strength and a weakness definitely
0: why do you see it as a weakness
1: um you know, sometimes solitude is you being fine with being alone, and sometimes it's a little bit of you hiding from other people. So I think there's a little of of each in me. Yeah, it's not a conscious decision, and it's not some kind of, like, monk-like simplicity or whatever. It's just that's sort of how I recharge is by hiding out and... Licking my wounds.
0: (laughs) In the wonderful cabins that you've built in the Redwoods?
1: Uh Uh-huh. I guess so.
0: You've declared that you are good at conceiving a project and structuring it in advance, and you're good at proofing it after the fact. It's the middle portion you are still learning how to do. Is that why you like to co-write your books? You've co-written four books.
1: Yeah, very much so. I still see myself much more as an editor, not as a writer. The process of writing these has actually felt much more like editing them. It's all the before and after, compacting that middle as much as possible. The collaboration has been really my favorite thing, and it's for all sorts of reasons. Partly just each of these collaborators brings something to the project that I could never bring myself. And also partly just because it's more fun. You know, all these projects, you get into the middle of them. At least for me, there's a time in the middle where you're saying, what is the point? And there's no real answer to it. There isn't really a point. (laughs) The only point is because you want to do it. And that wavers. And it's great to have someone else who either can help pick up the slack for a while or help encourage you or just help create an outside force. There's someone else who will mind if this thing doesn't happen. So I really enjoy the collaborations. And each one has been very lucky and great in a different way.
0: Let's talk about some of your books. You've written or co-written five books Your first book is titled The Clock Without a Face, and it is a bit of an anomaly. It's a storybook and a treasure hunt with real emeralds that were buried in real dirt across the country. The School Library Journal, which sounds like a very serious and erudite publication, called it the world's weirdest book. (laughs) They also called it wacky, hypnotic, awe-inspiring, and potentially hazardous to your health. (laughs) Why was it potentially harmful to somebody's health?
1: I guess if you went and dug somewhere, they shouldn't be digging. We definitely got a little, a few inquiries from law enforcement. You did. We did. But everything worked out in the end. I don't think anyone was injured.
0: So why bury emeralds all across the United States and send people out with... Maps and clues and ways to find these treasures. They were emerald
1: numbers. Exactly, but to me that question just answers itself. I mean,
0: why of not? Of course, you'd
1: want to do that. Doesn't that <laughs> sound great? I mean, if you can get away with it. Yeah, within the book, the twelve numbers from this precious clock were, were stolen, and the book was kind of a whodunit. And at the end, you found out who done it, but not where they are now and you realize there's clues in the book that let you dig it up. So I love that blurring of the fictional world and the real world. You know, so often these things will be totally separate from the fictional world. There's a book, and then, oh, it's a special promotion. You can go find the actual things. But this was very much tied to the fictional world. So it kind of gave both sides this extra magic.
0: Where was the strangest hole that you dug?
1: All of them were in holes at rest stops around the country. But then the 12, which was the most jewel-encrusted of them all, and that really had a serious number of emeralds on it, that was in the safe of a post office in this tiny town in gold country in California.
0: I'm sure you know that there is a a clock-without-a-face wiki, which includes the final solutions to where the numbers were buried and what clues led to the solve. My favorite thing about the wiki is this plea. Please only put the actual solutions here, not your guesses. Put your speculations on the other pages, just stuff from the known, actually dug up number here.
1: We didn't really realize this community when we made the book, but these treasure hunters, these geocachers, it's a whole world out there and it was fun. There was this one woman who became super obsessed with finding anagrams in the text and there were no actual anagrams in the text, (laughs) but she was very inventive.
0: I'm glad she found some if she Uh, wanted to.
1: And her name was Mayor Sarah on these message boards. And we found out she was actually the former mayor of, I think, Farmington, Massachusetts. Wow. She seemed like a wonderful lady, but not mayor material.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your second book, published in 2010, is titled Everything You Know Is Pong How Mighty Table Tennis Shapes Our World. What made you decide to write a book about ping pong, Eli?
1: I can't even remember, to be honest. This was another of these collaborations with my friend Roger Bennett who has gone on to be this soccer personality, half of Men in Blazers. But we wanted to do a project together, and we both discovered we had this love, this childhood love of ping pong, and it emerged from that. For me, it's actually this really high-concept work that I don't think anyone else sees that way, which is fine, but it's sort of a love song to ping pong and sort of this parody of... Single-topic history books that try and use one thing to explain everything, you know, that became a big trend. The Maybe world that,
0: according to Pong.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, to me, there's a lot of dubious leaps of logic, but all taking that structure of philosophical, you know, flow, which, you know, I'm Yeah, that philosophy degree came yeah. in handy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I don't know if it got the uh, scholarly critical attention that someday, <laughs> someday, someday, long after I'm dead. You dedicated the book to your father and your brother for teaching you how to
0: lose. So I'm assuming it's safe to assume that you weren't a very good player.
1: It was good for a basement player. There's two real levels of ping pong. There's basement players and there's sort of tournament players. And the tournament players are on a whole other level. But I couldn't beat most other basement players. It was in this very narrow nook. We had a table in the basement but the room was only about a foot wider than the table. Well, on one side. So on that side, there was this fake wood paneling of, you know, and I would just smash through because I was always losing. My brother was older (laughs) and my father, of course, and so I was very focused and determined, so I would go smashing through the wall to try and get into that corner.
0: Any injuries? Sounds like You know,
1: injuries to the wall more. (laughs) I I had too much adrenaline to feel any pain.
0: The book includes essays by really wonderful writers, Nick Hornby, Starley Kine, Harry Evans, among lots of others. And there's a rather raunchy chapter in the book that's titled Hits and Ass and includes some wonderfully retro ping pong erotica. I didn't know there was such a connection between ping pong and sex until I saw
1: this book. Oh yeah, both literally and metaphorically there's <laughs> you can go you can go real deep. <laughs> I'm not sure that the publisher ever actually looked to notice that. They never bugged us about it. We just sort of put it in there. There's also these two guys playing at a nudist colony that's... um, I love the fact that you have the caption,
0: models unknown.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a scholarly work. Roger was insistent that we have a caption for everything. But one of the few Amazon reviews of this book, which I don't think very many people bought or read, was someone being like, I gave this book to my priest. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) And was very disappointed to find out. Yeah. There's
0: a lot of full frontal nudity in this book for anybody that's interested in ping pong and you don't shy away
1: from the yeah.
0: The silent history, your third book, radically shifted the way stories can be told and shared and has really redrawn the boundaries of how technology can be used to amplify. The reading experience. You first released The Silent History in 2012 exclusively as an app. What made you decide to present the book in this way at that time?
1: Well, it was at a time when publishers had briefly tried to do some kind of flashy enhanced ebooks that no one was really into because they were not very organically linked. There was no real reason for them. Then they had sort of given up, and it was just Kindle. Everything was being turned into this gray slurry and squeezed into a Kindle. And because at McSweeney's we had spent so much time thinking about the object and the design, it was a little sad. Even without being nostalgic about print or the smell of the paper or anything, it was sad just to see all that kind of thrown away and disregarded. The whole idea that book design was even a thing was being treated as irrelevant. I felt like we were being left out as readers and writers. It was becoming a marketing and distribution platform, the change to digital. So I got to thinking, what else could you do? How could this open up new storytelling possibilities? And so that's really what it was. I wanted to keep it purely digital because I didn't want to make it, oh, and there's a digital version. I wanted to say this is a digital novel. And it was very much a novel. Also, there's no real video or other animation or anything. It's just a new way of presenting text. So yeah, it was a great experiment.
0: According to the book's website, The Silent History, The book is a groundbreaking novel that uses serialization, exploration, and collaboration to tell the story of a generation of unusual children born without the ability to create or comprehend language. Was this based on anything that you were witnessing happening? I was wondering if the growth of autism in our society might have inspired the idea at all.
1: There were a lot of things that went into it, but we were also very careful to veer constantly from one to another so there couldn't feel like it was a one-to-one allegory for anything so certainly the rise of autism informed it to some extent but in other places we were very conscious of making it grow in ways that were specifically opposite from how autism develops so we borrowed in different pieces from different sort of engines to fuel the plot but tried to avoid anything too simplistic for me it all emerged as a structural challenge I sort of knew I wanted a project that had certain structural confines and that created a story within it. I mean, even something as simple as I knew it was going to be written collaboratively. And it would be hard for multiple authors, as it turned out, three of us, to replicate the same voice in every section. Ah, so that's instead, why you have
0: 120 individual yeah, testimonials. Yeah, became an oral okay. history with yeah. different characters. So Righty. that
1: was a story thing. And then... In another way, I also knew there were going to be site-specific aspects to the story. So it had to be a story that had a kind of core thrust to the plot, but also allowed many other things within that world. So for that, a sort of epidemic story really helped. There was a unified thing that had many different incarnations all around. So then when you start putting these things together, medical story, oral history, bit by bit, we're creating an actual story world out of what started as sort of analytical problems.
0: Have you read Madeleine L'Engle's A Recall in Time?
1: I have. I, yeah, I definitely read that in school.
0: I couldn't help but see similarities between the world that was emerging in the silent history and the world or the planet that Meg goes to find her father, where her brother, little brother Charlie, ends up being unable to speak. And I was wondering if there was any kind of connection there at all.
1: It's interesting. I was actually just thinking about that book a couple days ago. I was lost. I was trying to get find how to get to the Brooklyn Bridge Park just because there's a lot of stuff in the way. And for some reason, I was thinking about that book. Tesseract. Yeah. But I also remember hating it when I read it. But <gasps> Eli. But, but but it also has stuck with me. I think it was like two years ahead of me because that book actually has some genuine weirdness and scariness to it that I think I was aware of and wasn't sure what to do with it. It's also a good title.
0: A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. Madeline Lango. This island history is told through 120 individual testimonials, as I mentioned. It's narrated by parents, teachers, friends, doctors, cult leaders, profiteers, and imposters. Some are recurring characters. Some only appear once or twice. How did you determine what the significance of each character was going to be? Why did you have some characters so prolific and others that were so almost transparent.
1: Well, the core characters we knew in advance, and those we figured out almost analytically. We wanted all these different people to have different relationships, both personally and psychologically, in relation to the silence, these children who couldn't speak. So someone who's on their side, someone who's against them, someone who's afraid of them, someone who's looking to profit off of them. So those were set up. But then because it was a serialization, each week was a set of five testimonials and that had a little arc to them. And then each month had a kind of cliffhanger and that was 20. So there was a mathematical structure to it that created sometimes we would just need something on a Thursday. And so we'd think of what character would fit with this kind of dilemma we're putting in this week. And that's why there would be this like foul mouthed mime in Ocean (laughs) City, Maryland. And those things became some of our favorite entries. And sometimes those characters would even take on a larger role. But by creating these weird structural challenges for ourselves, we were able to direct our creativity in a way that we wouldn't have done if we just had a free reign to do whatever.
0: Were you writing in real time?
1: No, we wrote it all beforehand, and then revised it as we went along.
0: So you have to forgive my trying to make connections between some of your work and some philosophers and other <laughs> no, writers I'm that, that I enjoy, but. Your work is so dense and so interesting in such an unusual way that it forced me to sort of think about, is this philosophy or is this literature? <laughs> and and The Silent History reminded me a little bit of Dostoevsky's notes uh, from the underground as well as A Wrinkle in Time. Interesting connection, <laughs> yeah. right? And how in our internal and external worlds the subjective and objective experiences merge. And it felt very much that part of the navigation of this serialized book was determining what was subjective and what was objective what is the truth and i don't know that you ever really provide an answer to that it's still very much left to the reader to ascertain but it felt very much a fight between objective and subjective truth yeah
1: i think subjectivity versus objectivity is something i think about a lot and in this book particularly it was how language mediates that And sort of as someone like many of us who constantly has a sort of internal model going on and understands the world through language, it also gives me a lot of skepticism about that. And so in a way, it was seductive to imagine this other form of existence where you're not cluttering it up, where you're not describing it to yourself constantly.
0: You also, in many ways, I think, redefine what is considered normal in society and how our
1: own constructs give us the sense of what we should or shouldn't be. Right. The idea of disability as being, to some extent, defined by a community was really interesting for us to think about. And when the minority becomes a majority, how does that... What happens then? And, you know, this was another place where the collaboration was really great. I wrote it with Matt Derby and Kevin Moffat, two other writers, and then Russell Quinn built the actual app version of it. And some of these thoughts, if it was just me, it would have probably been too on the nose. I had these somewhat philosophical analytical questions. And if you're just writing it, then it becomes like one of these old Soviet novels where it's just like, (laughs) I represent populism. I represent capitalism, you know. But the act of having more than one person involved The idea kind of gets ported from one brain to the other, and that's where the actual life and detail and richness gets put into it. In
0: 2012, after Apple named it Best Hidden Gem, Wired called it entirely revolutionary, and you won a Webby Award, you decided to make The Silent History into traditional book form with a gorgeous cover, by the way, by Rodrigo Corral.
1: I I think that was Oliver Monday, actually. Oh,
0: then Rodrigo did one of your other beautiful covers. (laughs) Um, Huge fan of his. I read that you stated that you were happy you did it, but it also made you want to think about how the print version could be envisioned with as much care and specificity as the digital version rather than one version being the main event and another being secondary or an afterthought. How do you feel that ended up?
1: I mean, I'm glad that the science history exists, like you say, but I was aware of that relationship. And so that became the Pickle Index, the current project, which has a digital version and a print version that sort of are both fully realized, both have as much thought and attention, but are both entirely independent and coming out at the same time. Very much saying that there's you're on a level playing field, there's two different ways to experience this. And both print and digital has as much room for experimentation and play and innovation.
0: One last question about the silent history. Sure. I read that you wanted to bring a little of the independent publishing ethos to the tech world. And you stated in independent publishing, you don't have expectations of largeness. You are aware of just how small something can be. Something can sell 1,800 copies, and that is considered a good book. Were you surprised by the success of this silent history you've also optioned it like isn't amc coming out with a television series they're working
1: on it uh yeah i was pleased by how it did but still is on this level this big middle level you know there's so much space between nothing and everything snapchat or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and so it wasn't even a conscious statement at the time it was something we became aware of during being in the sort of especially in the san francisco environment Ideas are to some extent evaluated for their scalability, but in some sense it's very contrary to art, if we're going to actually talk about art. And so it wasn't the point of it, but it was a place where it was useful to come from this McSweeney's independent publishing background to just not worry about it too much, to just decide having an idea and carrying it out is worthwhile in itself.
0: One of the things that I read that you said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, I think probably badly, but I'll do my best— that no one starts a book thinking about whether or not it can turn into a theme park. <laughs> I don't know if that's true anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it kind of would be fun almost now that you mention it to write a book specifically for it to become a theme park. If you had some assurance it was actually become a theme park.
0: If you're Stephen King, you probably could. You're right. Banksy because right. he, didn't he do that yeah. pretty much? <laughs> I mean, that seems
1: like a fun challenge to give yourself. But allowing things to be small and still allowing that to feel like a success is really important. It's not always easy, especially no, I think it's privilege, actually in this um it's a privilege, but it's a psychological privilege. I think it's more available to people than they realize in what way? Um, I think a lot of it is expectations or demands that you put on yourself that maybe there's various societal and financial forces encouraging. Mm-hmm. But they're not inevitable. They're not unavoidable. I mean, again, so much comes back to I live with roommates and this probably wouldn't exist if I didn't live with roommates. So specific practical choices. I mean, the reason the Pickle Index came out in this very elaborate version that we had printed. You self-funded it. And that was, you know, rent I haven't paid for the last 10 years, (laughs) you know. It's a mix of sort of weird creative ideas and following those visions, but also creating a life for yourself where you have the space to follow them.
0: So it's about choices and priorities. Yeah. Let's talk about the Pickle Index. It's your latest endeavor, because I don't think you can actually say that this is Just a book. It's so much more than a book. It's like a little universe. That's what it is. The Pickle Index is a universe. Um, You originally referred to the Pickle Index by a code name. The code name was Elephant. Yeah, originally it was (laughs) going to be.
1: Originally, I think the title was The Amplified Elephant because there's a circus in it. The pickles only came into the story much later during the actual writing. Again, this was a thing where I had the notion, I had the premise, I had the shape of it. It seems that the actual writing is not going to really be—it's just almost a formality. And then you sit down, you actually have to do it, and then the work kind of morphs and expands in ways you don't expect. I'm glad that we talked about influences and
0: connections in your other books because you said that this particular book takes more from The Princess Bride and The Bad News Bears than any other book that you could think of.
1: Yeah, this one was very much— calling upon the things I loved as a kid. So there's this author, Ellen Raskin, who's most famous for The Westing Game. She did a lot of great kids' books. This author, Daniel Pinkwater. This sort of combining of two worlds of just sort of weird losers. And I always loved the kind of almost formulaic stories of the specialists, like each person, like the A-team. Each person's got their thing, and then they're going to mount a caper somehow with all those things. So fusing those worlds was really appealing to me.
0: You have a book trailer out now on Vimeo where you declare the Pickle Index is a privilege and a responsibility. What is a Pickle Index and why is it a privilege and a responsibility?
1: Well, in the world of the story, the government is sort of attempting a rebranding of pickles, (laughs) saying they can be used for almost every meal. They're very versatile. They fill every nutritional need. It's sort of a cynical foodie populism to disguise the fact that no one's actually getting anything to eat other than these pickles. So it's positioning. Right. It was important that with all our videos and things like that, we don't be shticky like this kind of like faux Soviet kitsch, but actually try to make the best-looking pro-pickle advertisement that we could. I remember being really taken by this. It was a Maserati ad and the Super Bowl a couple years ago that took the style of Beasts of the Southern Wild for the release of this new Maserati and it was like the little guys are going to rise up and it was done in this very dramatic handheld style and it felt both a pretty ad and super cynical and disgusting to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved that juxtaposition of you can have style that's totally oblivious of the sort of moral value of its content. So anyway, in the world, The Pickle Index is this mandatory recipe exchange network. Every citizen has to either write or forward a fermentation recipe every day, again, to sort of show us how versatile and wonderful the pickles are.
0: And you also encourage readers to
1: do the same. Well, the crazy thing is in this app that Russell built, we actually built a functioning recipe exchange network that then has this story kind of buried within it.
0: The book exists in three simultaneous standalone editions, an app, an interactive two-volume hardcover set, which is absolutely stunning, and a paperback published by FSG. And I read an interview wherein you declared that you wanted to make the bookiest book you could do and the appiest app. What is the bookiest book and the appiest app? How do you define those?
1: Well, you just try and think about what couldn't you do in the other one. That was sort of how we constructed it. What special abilities does each medium have? And how does that not extend to the other one? And then being really rigorous about not trying to simulate one within the other. So the art that's in the book hardly appears in the digital version. The digital version has 90 other pickle recipes that don't even appear in the main text because I had to fill out this crazy pickle network.
0: And tonally, it's very different.
1: The the app is very different from
0: the tone and the look and the feel of the book.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because the way we're thinking of it now, we only realized this along the way, but we think of the book, the print version, as the outside-in edition, and we think of the app as the inside-out. You're experiencing it along with the people in the world, both because you're within this recipe exchange network and also because you read it over the 10 days that it takes a story to take place. But that was an understanding we came to very late. This was really a long process of figuring out through doing.
0: This is how the book was described in a wonderful article on NPR. In an oppressive autocracy, Zilati Cornblatt and his sad little circus couldn't get a laugh if they tried. But then one fateful night, through a series of comical mishaps and without trying at all, he is unintentionally funny and accidentally impersonates the prime mother of their government, Madame J, and her beloved pet octopus Simeon. Zilati brings down the house, but unfortunately, there's an informer in the audience. The next day, he is gone, taken in the night, leaving his inept, ragtag group of performers to head into the capital city to find him and bring him home. This story, told in alternating chapters, is narrated by Flora, Zilati's assistant, and is ostensibly being written down by her and fed into the Pickle Index, the city's cumbersome cucumber network, full of briny and fermented recipes for citizens to make in their own homes.
1: Eli, anything else you want to tell us about the plot? I think that says it all. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that does a great job. It was fun to occupy these familiar structures and then just try and tweak each one a little bit. And so... If you just do enough of those tweaks, it goes from something formulaic to something totally bizarre. But you don't really, or at least I wasn't conscious of it at the time.
0: Zilati seems to be the love child of Zero Mostel and
1: Nathan Lane. Would you say that's <laughs> I true? I think that's fair. I was also imagining a little Jean Shallot in the...
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The hair. Uh-huh. Totally <laughs> the hair. The hair. In the hardback version of the Pickle Index, you alternate back and forth chapter to chapter between two gorgeous volumes by illustrator Ian Hubert, Why did you choose to alternate the chapters between the two volumes? And can you talk a bit about how the illustrations actually fit together, even though they're in separate volumes?
1: Sure. Well, so the two volumes are the Daily News of This Country and Flora's Recipes. So you read chapter one in one and chapter one in the other. So just as a dramatic structure, that's really fun, having two plot lines to alternate between. Then the illustrations fit in there because... The way they work is the illustration from one book actually physically connects with the illustration in the other book, a little like an exquisite corpse. But the configuration of the two is different each day. So for one, they might be side by side. Another, they might be on top of each other, the two books. Another, you even have to rotate or flip a book.
0: It's fun to figure out, by the way. Yeah,
1: so I want it to be a little puzzle. And I even thought about how it starts easier. And as the days go along, it gets more challenging. So you're sort of learning it. It also has a plot value to me they function almost as three-panel comic strips in a sense. There's the first beat, the second beat, and then the combined beat is the two drawings combined. It was a great collaboration with Ian. I had some of the ideas figured out in advance. Some I thought I'd figured out, but in a way that my mind couldn't actually comprehend because I couldn't put them on paper, and some I had no idea. And he did a great job of working together to figure out what we were doing.
0: The story seems to rely on the notion that the various characters have a somewhat limited amount of information and have to make decisions based on what they do and don't know, and readers have to figure it out.
1: Yeah, and I felt like that was echoing something that people in these worlds have to do. I mean, not to be too weighty about it, but when I started this, it was during Arab Spring and things like that. And so people were storming the walls and the government was saying everything's fine. But meanwhile, there's a whole other story going on on Twitter and Facebook among the activists. So I was thinking about a cartoonish version of that. But then flipping it, it does put the reader in an interesting position. The um, government says, like, we're going to put checkpoints on all the bridges and then cut to the circus. And they're saying, let's go over the bridge. It'll be easy. And I wanted you as a reader to be thinking, no, don't go over the bridge. <laughs> and that sort of provided its own tension. So it was a useful structure from a dramatic point of view.
0: Every book you've written has been optioned for film or television. Um, we talked about *This Island History slated to become AMC's new prestige drama. <laughs> um What do you think is possible for the Pickle Index? Because I do think
1: it could be a really interesting theme park. Yeah, to me, it's the easiest of any of these. I mean, if you imagine that the ping pong book, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, compared to that, this seems like a walk in the park. But I don't know. I find those things better to just enjoy when they happen in whatever form they happen rather than to expect anything in advance because you just go crazy.
0: Any interesting pickle recipes showing up from readers?
1: Some gross ones, some pretty Ooh. gross ones. Well, the
0: Vimeo, the, the film that you yeah. have up is a little bit on the sort of yeah. bridesmaids
1: kind of. They're not good. Messy. But it's versatile. I yeah. mean, you can eat a pickle in any way. That doesn't mean that you should. The
0: barbecue pickles actually look very interesting. Barbecues that was... were
1: not bad. The only problem is the juice gets very hot inside, so there's a sort of boiling Pop. pickle juice in the face effect. The pickle fondue is not bad. Pickle ice cream sundae is bad. Pickle s'mores are bad. But I learned. You learned from experience.
0: And I like the idea of putting a pickle in a hot dog bun.
1: Why that not? It seems inventive. Yeah. And you can put all the fixings on it. Yeah. Great low carb. It's like a paleo. Maybe not paleo. I don't know what it is. But I'm sure there's there's advantages. It's pickleicious. And it's more kind to whoever goes into a hot dog.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Eli, the last thing I want to talk to you about is what else you are currently doing. I read that you've been commissioned to come up with a new form of audio tour for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. You're also putting together the narrative puzzle pieces as a contributing editor of Starly Kine's Mystery Show podcast. And you're also devoting a lot of time to reading about the Washington Wizards. So can you tell us about those
1: efforts? I mean, I can definitely tell you about the Washington Wizards. The other one, sure, that too. The SF MoMA project is still a mystery to me. I'm really excited about because of how open it is. And I've never been in this museum environment before, never worked for it, never done anything that was overtly art going into it. So I feel like I've been sneaking these ideas that are artistic to me into more popular forms. I'm excited now to do it in the reverse, to sort of take a museum piece and try and make it very narrative and and goofy and hopefully fun. But what it is is still a mystery to me. The problem is it's supposed to be very site-specific, but the museum is still a construction site. They've been doing this two-year extensive renovation. So these pieces, mine and I think one other, will debut when the museum opens. That's exciting. So it will be exciting. But right now it's just— Big mystery. Yeah, to me and to them and to you. Mystery Show has been really fun. I've been doing a little of this podcasting work, and it's been interesting to use sort of the same editorial skills but with a different kind of playing field, just how you think about what you have control over and what you don't have control over is a whole sort of different assortment. So you're sort of using an old skill and sort of learning it in a new way. So that's been fun. But really I don't know what's next. I've been sort of pushing on this project for a while, and it does feel weird to kind of force this thing into the world. I mean, I'm proud of it. I'm happy with how it turned out. But I'm also happy to sort of just let the world exist unmolested for a while (laughs) without me forcing myself upon it. So we'll see.
0: Eli Horowitz, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. You are an extraordinary polymath, and it's a real honor to speak to you
1: today. Thank you for having me.
0: You can find out more about Eli Horowitz on EliHorowitz.net. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.